You don't have to look long and hard to see the reality of sin in our world. Just flip on the news, pick up a paper. You see there is sin and degradation everywhere. And you don't have to look long and hard to see that you've got some issues too. I've got some issues too. Not only do we deal with the sin around us, we have to deal with the sin within us. And that can be a real problem. But here's the good news. God in His grace wants us to understand that there is forgiveness for sin and victory over sin. And to see that clearly, we want to look at Joshua chapter 7. So turn there with me, Joshua chapter 7. We're jumping back into our study of Joshua. Joshua chapter 7, we'll begin reading in verse 1. I'm going to ask you this morning, if you are physically able to please stand with me in honor of the reading of God's Word. The Bible says, But the people of Israel broke faith in regard to the devoted things. For Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, took some of the devoted things, and the anger of the Lord burned against the people of Israel. Joshua sent men from Jericho to Ai, which is near Beth-Avon, east of Bethel, and said to them, Go up and spy out the land. And the men went up and spied out Ai, and they returned to Joshua and said to him, Do not have all the people go up, but let about two or three thousand men go up and attack Ai. Do not make the whole people toil up there, for they are few. So about three thousand men went up there from the people, and they fled before the men of Ai. And the men of Ai killed about thirty-six of their men and chased them before the gate as far as Shebarim and struck them at the descent and the hearts of the people melted and became as water. Then Joshua tore his clothes and fell to the earth on his face before the ark of the Lord until the evening he and the elders of Israel and they put dust on their heads and Joshua said, Alas, O Lord God, why have you brought this people over the Jordan at all? to give us into the hands of the Amorites, to destroy us? Would that we had been content to dwell beyond the Jordan. O Lord, what can I say when Israel has turned their backs before their enemies? For the Canaanites and all the inhabitants of the land will hear of it and will surround us and cut off our name from the earth. And what will you do for your great name? The Lord said to Joshua, Get up. Why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I will be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. I'm going to pray for us in just a moment, but uh, before I do that, let me tell you this. Early this morning, I got a text uh, from Tommy McDonald saying, the church has no electricity. And, of course, that concerned me. 
Uh, we need electricity for air and for lights and for video and for microphones and all of that. So I was kind of thinking, okay, we don't have electricity. That's not good. As a matter of fact, I texted back, uh-oh. And a little bit later, I got another text saying, electricity's back on, church has electricity. And so that was great. Then I had my quiet time. I was reading from 2 Samuel chapter 22, which is David's song of praise and thanksgiving to God after God delivered him from his enemies. And David said this in his song of praise. For you are my lamp, O Lord, and my God lightens my darkness. 2 Samuel twenty-two twenty-nine. And the Lord reminded me in that moment that yes, we need electricity. That's important to have. But how much more do we need the Lord to be with us? We need His presence. We need His power among us. We're going to pray together. We're going to ask God to draw near in a special way and help us in these moments as we study His wars. Let's pray together this morning. Father in heaven, we are so grateful for the shed blood of Christ. We have no merit apart from Christ. We we are not deserving of a hearing from you. And yet, Christ has made a way for us to be forgiven, to be saved, to be transformed. And now, because of His finished work, we can come into Your presence with our petitions, with our praise. And in these moments, we ask that You would draw near. Lord, by Your Spirit, as we study Your Word, open the eyes of our hearts. Help us to understand Your Word and give us the inclination to respond to what we learn. Lord, I pray that we will be transformed today because of your work in our lives. So help us to understand forgiveness and freedom. And we'll thank you, Lord, for that grace. And we ask and pray all of this in the strong name of Jesus. Amen. Thank you. You can be seated. Notice that chapter 7 begins with the word but there, there's a contrast here that that word helps us to understand is coming. Now, you remember Joshua chapter 6, when God gave his people a great victory over the city of Jericho. The Lord made the walls fall down flat, and the Israelite army conquered the people of Jericho. A remarkable victory, but something changes in chapter 7. We see a contrast between thrilling victory, and in chapter 7, a humiliating defeat. They go against a smaller city, and they have to flee for their lives from the men of Ai. And so we need to think through this. Why the, the great victory in chapter 6, but the, the defeat in chapter 7? What's happening here? Well, the answer is sin. Sin happened. There was disobedience among God's people, and so he did not give them victory over Ai until they dealt with the sin. And so keeping that in mind, I want us to think through what sin is all about. And I want to give you four thoughts about sin. The the first one is this, sin's fascination. Sin's fascination. It says there in verse 13, after the Lord tells Joshua there's sin in the camp, that's why you didn't have victory, he says, get up, consecrate the people and say, 
Consecrate yourselves for tomorrow, for thus says the Lord God of Israel, there are devoted things in your midst, O Israel. You cannot stand before your enemies until you take away the devoted things from among you. Now, in Joshua chapter 6, as the people were about to attack Jericho, uh, the Lord said, there's going to be silver and gold. Don't take it for yourself. It goes into the Lord's treasury. It's devoted to the Lord's treasury for future resources for God's people. And so don't take the silver and gold. They are devoted to the Lord. But someone had taken the silver and gold for themselves. It says, In the morning, therefore, you shall be brought near by your tribes, and the tribe that the Lord takes by lot shall come near by clans, and the clan that the Lord takes shall come near by households, and the household that the Lord takes shall come near man by man, and he who is taken with the devoted things shall be burned with fire, he and all that he has, because he has transgressed the covenant of the Lord, and because he has done an outrageous thing in Israel. So Joshua rose early in the morning and brought Israel near tribe by tribe, and the tribe of Judah was taken. And he brought near the clans of Judah, and the clan of the Zarahites was taken. And he brought near the clan of the Zarahites man by man, and Zabdi was taken. And he brought near his household man by man, and Achan, the son of Carmi, son of Zabdi, son of Zerah, of the tribe of Judah, was taken. Then Joshua said to Achan, My son, give glory to the Lord God of Israel, and give praise to him. And tell me now what you have done. Do not hide it from me. And Achan answered Joshua, Truly I have sinned against the Lord God of Israel. And this is what I did. When I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak from Shinar, and... 200 shekels of silver and a bar of gold weighing 50 shekels. Then I coveted them and took them and see, they are hidden in the earth inside my tent with the silver underneath. The Lord said, don't take devoted things. And Achan took devoted things for himself. Now I want you to notice in verse 21, three particular words. If you look there, you see the word saw. He says, I saw among the spoil a beautiful cloak and 200 shekels of silver. Underline that word, saw. And then he says, I coveted them. Underline the word coveted. And then he says, I took them. Underline the word took. Saw, coveted, took. First of all, he saw the devoted things. That's where sin begins. Sin starts when we do not flee temptation. Now, it's not a sin to be tempted. Jesus was tempted and yet without sin. And and you and I will be tempted every day of our lives. It is common to every person. And when we are tempted, if we do not flee from that temptation, if we're not not fleeing from what we see, then we are headed down the wrong path. Or you might say it like this, Sin originates with the second look. It's not the first look of that thing you want that you should not have. It's the second look. And, and that's what Achan does. He's, he's in the city of Jericho. God's given them great victory. And he looks and sees this, this cloak of Shinar, which is Babylon. It, it, it's, it's alluring to him. He sees the shekels of silver. Instead of just looking away and going about his business, he looks again. And, and that's where sin starts. First John two fifteen and 16 says this, do not love the world or the things in the world. If anyone loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, listen, the desires of the flesh and the desires of the eyes 
and the pride of life is not from the Father, but is from the world. So sin starts when we do not flee temptation. We, we look, and then we look again. And then you know what happens? We go from looking to coveting. Achan says, I saw, I coveted. He began to, to mull these things over in his mind and in his heart. When the look becomes a desire, we are headed for real trouble. James 1, 14 and 15 says this, But each person is tempted when he is lured and enticed by his own desire. You remember Flip Wilson said, The devil made me do it. You know, the devil is a destroyer and a liar and a tempter, but can you understand and will you understand today that most of what gets us in trouble is our own desire carrying us away? When desire is conceived, it gives birth to sin, James says, and sin, when it is fully grown, brings forth death. So he, he looks, then he covets. He begins to desire those things that God told him he could not have. Warren Wearsby writes this, Instead of singing praises in his heart for the great victory God had given, Achan was imagining in his heart what it would be like to own all that treasure. How would I look in that robe from Babylon? What would it be like to have this silver and this gold? Wearsby says, The imagination is the womb in which desire is conceived and from which sin and death are eventually born. So Achan says, I saw. And then he says, I coveted. But then he says, I took. I took. When we give into our wrong desires, we transgress God's commandments. Verse 11, verse 15 says, I, I sinned. I, I transgressed. I, I took the devoted things that you told me not to take. And so we see this cycle of sin in Achan's life. Saul, covet, took. Now, I want you to understand this cycle of sin was not new with Achan. As a matter of fact, this cycle of sin is as old as the Garden of Eden. Over in Genesis chapter 3, when Eve is being tempted by Satan to take the fruit that God told them not to take and to eat of the fruit God, them, God told them not to eat, it says in verse 6, when the woman saw that the tree was good for food. That word saw is the same word used in Joshua 7 when Achan says, I saw. Then it says, this fruit was a delight to the eyes and she saw that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. That word desired is the same Hebrew word translated coveted in Joshua chapter 7. And then it says in Genesis 3, 6, she took of its fruit and ate. Same word that Achan used. Saul, desired, coveted, took. That's the cycle of sin that started in the Garden of Eden. We see it in Achan's life. And guess what? That cycle of sin is still being perpetuated today in your life and my life. It's what sin is. You see, you desire, you take. And so you and I have a real issue, don't we? We've got sin in our life. We've, we've done things God told us not to do, and we've not done things God's told us to do. Sin's fascination. It lures us. It promises things to us. And that's what started the slippery slope that Achan was on. 
But not only do I want you to see sin's fascination, I want you to see in this text sin's assassination. Look what happens after Achan has no other choice but to to repent or, or to confess. Verse 22, the Bible says, So Joshua sent messengers, and they ran to the tent, and behold, it was hidden in his tent with the silver underneath. And they took them out of the tent and brought them to Joshua and to all the people of Israel. And they laid them down before the Lord. And Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver and the cloak and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters and his oxen and donkeys and sheep and his tent and all that he had. And they brought them up to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, Why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned them with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. And so... Achan gives in to the lure of sin, the fascination of sin. And here in this text, he experiences the consequences for his sin. He is destroyed for his sin. You see, sin never delivers on its promises. It fascinates, it lures, but it never delivers on what it promises to give you. As a matter of fact, sin promises excitement, but then it executes. Sin promises delight, but then it destroys. Sin promises thrills, but then it kills. Sin fascinates, and then it assassinates. One preacher said, sin will take you farther farther than you want to go. It'll keep you longer than you want to stay, and it will cost you more than you want to pay. Sin has consequences. Sin loves to lure and then go in for the kill. I had a teammate on my college soccer team who was very gifted. He was smart, and he was a great soccer player. I mean, one of the best players on the team, had a bright future ahead of him. He was a a good-looking dude. All the girls loved him. And, I mean, this guy had everything going for him. And he eventually, there in college, got in with some guys, and they started smoking pot. And over time, he got more immersed in that drug culture and alcohol culture. And over time, he just stopped caring. He stopped caring about school. He stopped caring about soccer. He stopped caring about things that really mattered. And before you know it, he was kicked out of the school. And I looked at that and thought, what a waste. I mean, he was so much better than I was at soccer, and he had such a bright future. And I thought, what a waste. I mean, he had, he had everything going for him. But sin began to fascinate him. And then I saw sin assassinate him. Sin took him out, destroyed his life. And so we need to understand that like Achan, if we give in, we see we covet, we take, when we are in those cycles of sin, destruction is headed our way. So we thought about sin's fascination and sin's assassination, but third, I want you to think with me about sin's ramification. There are some implications for our sin in other people's lives. Listen to me, you never sin in isolation. Your sin affects others. Sin affects those closest to us. Look in verse 24. It says, 
Joshua and all Israel with him took Achan, the son of Zerah, and the silver, and the cloak, and the bar of gold, and his sons and daughters, and his oxen, and donkeys, and sheep, and his tent, all they had. They brought him to the valley of Achor. And Joshua said, why did you bring trouble on us? The Lord brings trouble on you today. And all Israel stoned him with stones. They burned them with fire and stoned them with stones. Now you might think, why did Achan's family have to pay for his sin? Well, here's the deal. Over in Deuteronomy chapter 24, verse 16, the Bible says, Fathers shall not be put to death because of their children, nor shall children be put to death because of their fathers. Each one shall be put to death for his own sin. So I don't believe that the family of Achan is innocent here. I believe they were accomplices. They knew exactly what was happening. Perhaps even helped him to keep the devoted things hidden. And so they pay the consequences for their sin, just like Achan did. But notice here, that sin spreads from Achan to his family, to those closest to him. And they experience consequences. And we need to understand that if we see and we covet and we take, eventually it's going to affect those that we love, those closest to us. Not only that, sin affects God's people. Sin affects the body of Christ. Why, why do you say that? Well, ongoing sin spreads among God's people. Verse 26, it says, They raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Why did they put this stone monument over Achan's body? I believe as a reminder. So that every time the people saw the heap of stones, they were reminded of Achan's sin. Reminded to not do what Achan did. There, there's real consequences for your sin. And so God wanted to, to take the sin out by its root because the Lord understands that if sin is left unchecked among his people, it will spread. The Bible says that a little leaven leavens the whole lump. And I believe God deals with the situation so harshly and so directly because he did not want this, this sin, this ethos, to spread among his people. Over in Acts chapter 5, we see something very similar. There's a man named Ananias and his wife named Sapphira, and they sold their land, and they made this big show of giving all the proceeds to the church, except they didn't give it all to the church. They were just making the show of giving it all to the church. They were being hypocrites. And so when they come to the leaders of the church and make a show of giving it all, God strikes them dead. Now, is that the normative way that God works? Well, no. I'm glad, right? Can you imagine people, should we walk in today? Should we not walk in, right? I believe God killed Ananias and Sapphira for a reason, as a lesson to the rest of the church. Don't be a hypocrite. Take sin seriously. And we see God moving in dramatic ways sometimes to get the point across because God knows the danger of sin that is left unchecked and begins to spread to others. A little leaven leavens the whole lump. Sin affects God's people. Jay Sidlow Baxter writes this, It must have been a sorrow to Jehovah to inflict the AI reverse upon his people. Yet Israel must learn by necessary pain that both for their own sake and the sake of Jehovah's holy name, sin must be judged and put away. The heap of stones was a reminder that you deal seriously with sin. But also, as we think about sin affecting other people and sin affecting God's people, 
ongoing sin among God's people prevents spiritual victories. Look what it says in verse 10 of Joshua chapter 7. The Lord said to Joshua, Get up, why have you fallen on your face? Israel has sinned. They have transgressed my covenant that I commanded them. They have taken some of the devoted things. They have stolen and lied and put them among their own belongings. Therefore, the people of Israel cannot stand before their enemies. No victory. They turn their backs before their enemies because they have become devoted for destruction. I'll be with you no more unless you destroy the devoted things from among you. In other words, the Lord's saying to Joshua, you're not going to be victorious until you deal with with the sin issue. I'm not going to bless you with my presence and my help until you deal with that sin. Ongoing sin among God's people prevents spiritual victories. Donald Madvick says God's people will not succeed if they are disobedient. So let me ask you a question. What prohibits revival and spiritual awakening in America today? Is it a lack of resources? Certainly not. We have all kinds of resources. We got buildings and we got budgets and we got numbers. What prevents a great awakening in our country today? Because, can I remind you, we're losing our nation? Could it be that God's people are tolerating sin in their own lives? And because of that, God is not causing His hand of victory to rest upon His church? And instead of seeing revival and awakening, we just find ourselves going through the motions as we get cozy with sin. Could that be the issue in America? I think it could be. Ongoing sin among God's people prevents spiritual victories. I read a book in seminary by a professor named Charlie Culpepper. He's with the Lord now. Charlie Culpepper spent some time as a missionary in the Shantung province in China, the early 1900s. He was with a group of missionaries, and they were seeing very little fruit, very little results. And they were frustrated. I mean, they were trying to preach the gospel, and it seems like nothing was happening. They were getting together for these conferences to discuss what was going on. And at one of these conferences, one of the missionaries got up and began to confess personal sin from years prior. After that, Another missionary got up, began to share sin and get right before the Lord. You know what happened next? As all these missionaries began to get right with Jesus, the Spirit of God moved with power in the Shantung province and thousands of Chinese people were swept into the kingdom of God. Real awakening happened because God's people began to deal with their sin. And so if we want spiritual victory. If we want spiritual vitality, we've got to stop cozying up to sin, right? Hiding it and holding on to it. We've got to deal with it, confess it, and let God give us victory over those areas. Sin has some ramifications. It affects those closest to us. It affects the body of Christ in which we are a part. But finally... I want you to think with me for a moment about sin's solution. I'm so glad my sermon doesn't end with point number three. 
I'm glad that there is a solution for the sin problem that we all deal with. And I want to talk about sin solution under two different headings. First of all, I want to talk to the Christ follower. If you're here this morning and you're born again, you're a Christian, you're saved, that eternal question has been answered, I want to talk to you about how you break the cycle of sin and live in victory. And just a reminder, if you're a Christian today, the Spirit of God lives in you. You don't have to fight sin in your own strength and power. The power of God is in you, amen? And you have the Word of God before you to guide you. And you have the people of God around you to encourage you and hold you accountable. So you have some resources, right? How do you break cycles of sin? First of all, be vigilant. Be on guard. Over in Genesis chapter 4, the Lord says to Cain, before he kills his brother Abel, the Lord knew what he's about to do. To Cain, understand sin is crouching at your door. And that's true of everyone in this room. Sin is always there, looking for an opportunity to infiltrate and destroy. So we've got to be vigilant. We've got to be on guard. I read a book years ago called Beneath the Surface by Bob Record, and Bob Record said that all of us are just one step away from stupid. Can I get an amen? Can we amen stupid today? We're all just one step, one unguarded moment away from destruction, right? We've got to be vigilant. We've got to be on guard. Secondly, how do you break the cycles of sin? Find the way of escape. 1 Corinthians 10, 13, the Bible says that temptation is common to every man. Everybody deals with temptation. Jesus did, yet without sin. So all of us are tempted. So what do we do when we're tempted? Well, we look for the way of escape because 1 Corinthians 10, 13 says that God in that moment of temptation is faithful in that he provides a way to flee from the temptation. So when you find yourself in a tempting situation, you look and you want to look again, you want to covet, you want to take hold of, know that God is at work. Know that God is faithful. Find the way of escape that's there because God promised it would be there. And when you find the way of escape, don't walk, run. Run. Be vigilant and find the way of escape. And here's the third thing I would say as you and I seek to break cycles of sin. We need to treasure Jesus. We need to treasure Jesus. Instead of being fascinated by sin, we need to be amazed by Christ. A Scottish preacher in the late 1700s, early 1800s, preached a sermon. His name was Thomas Chalmers. He, he preached a sermon titled, The Expulsive Power of a New Affection. In other words, instead of being lured by sin all the time, say no to sin, but then make sure that instead of an empty void in your life, you fill up your heart with Christ. And that love for Christ will drive out desires for wrong stuff. The expulsive power of a new affection. The old hymn says it, doesn't it? Turn your eyes upon Jesus. Look full in his wonderful face. And the things of earth will grow strangely dim 
in the light of His glory and grace. If you and I will keep our eyes upon Jesus and be amazed by Him and treasure Him above all else, then the things of this world that have such a grip on our lives will grow strangely dim. Treasure Christ! Sometimes the best defense is a good offense. Treasure Christ! That's how we begin to break cycles of sin in our life. God designed you as a born-again believer indwelt by the Spirit to live in victory, not in defeat. This is how you begin to see those cycles broken. But there's a second group of people I want to address this morning. I want to address those that may be here among us that are unsaved. You've never entered into a personal relationship with God through Jesus Christ. You're far from God and you know it. And sin is having a way with you. And it's destroying you. Say, wait, what about me? I mean, I I can identify with Achan. I've blown it. Is there any hope for me? Well, here's what I want to say to you about sin's solution. You can embrace free and full forgiveness from a merciful God. Look what it says in verse 26. It says, They raised over him a great heap of stones that remains to this day. Then the Lord turned from his burning anger. After God judged his sin, God turns away from being angry against that sin. You say, wait, that doesn't look like good news to me. That he has to to punish me to turn away from his anger toward me. Well, can I tell you this? God is a God of absolute moral perfection. He's a God of holiness, total, unique, moral majesty. And because of that, he must punish sin. So wait, where's the good news? God did something for you and for me. He sent his only son, Jesus Christ, to this earth. And Jesus Christ went to the cross, and the Bible says in 2 Corinthians 5.21 that he became sin for us. And on the cross, God the Father poured out his wrath and anger and fury against our sin on his sinless son. And instead of punishing us, he punished his son in our place. Jesus took our punishment for us. So now, if we embrace Jesus Christ as our personal Lord and Savior, God will turn away from his anger toward us and embrace us as his children. That's the good news. You can identify with Achan today. You can embrace Jesus Christ and be saved. Your sins forgiven. Your sins washed away. As we heard in the song earlier, no more condemnation. The debt of man is paid. And so if you are unsaved, you don't have to stay that way. You can embrace, and you can embrace today, the free and full forgiveness God offers you through His Son, Jesus Christ. You say, hey, uh, preacher, you don't know what a mess I'm in. I mean, sin has really done a number on me. You don't know what my past week looked like or my past month, or you don't even know what last night looked like for me. I'm in a mess. I mean, what can God do for me? Well, look what it says in verse 26. 
So the Lord turned from his burning anger. Therefore, to this day, the name of that place is called the Valley of Achor, which translated means trouble. They call that the Valley of Trouble because of the trouble that sin brought into Achan's life. And you might say, wait, wait, I can identify with that. Right now, I'm living in the Valley of Achor. Right now, I'm living in the Valley of Trouble. Well, over in Hosea, the Lord is speaking to his people. And they had been unfaithful to him. And he says to them, even though you've been unfaithful, I'm going to provide salvation for you. And here's what he says in Hosea 2.15. And there I will give her vineyards and make the valley of Achor, valley of trouble, a door of hope. You know what Jesus will do for you? He'll take you right where you are in your trouble and your brokenness and he will turn your situation into hope. Only Jesus can do that. Only a gracious, all-powerful God can do that. They can meet us in our brokenness, meet us in our shame, meet us in our sin, meet us in our trouble and open up the door to hope, to joy, to peace, Fulfillment, purpose, meaning, life. So, Jesus can take your valley of trouble, make it into a doorway of hope. Here's what I want you to walk away with today. Even though, like Achan, we have sinned against God, forgiveness and victory over sin are available through Christ. We can all see a little bit of ourselves in aching, can't we? But the good news is this, through Christ we can be forgiven and through the power of God in our lives we can live in victory over the cycles of sin. And that is really, really good news.